Uh, today in the studio, we've got probably one of the most famous disabled uh, photographers in the world, in my view, because I don't know many in the world. So, And it's Clifford Morris. You're it. I am. <laughs> Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Paul. So I see after your name, you've got FRPS. Tell us what that stands for. That's a fellow of the Royal Photographic Society. It's a distinction that they don't give away very lightly. Um, it takes a lot of hard work uh, to gain that. Uh, I actually started photography when I was 21. But his father was very possessive. If I drove his car, it would be examined minutely for the tiniest mark. And if I borrowed his camera, the same thing happened. So uh, having got fed up with this, I decided for my 21st, I'd, I'd have a camera of my own. And if I did get a mark on it, it would no longer matter. Um, I very shortly afterwards joined the Walsall Photographic Society and listening to lecturers who came to give the talks to the club each week I soon discovered that the Royal Photographic Society was um, an international body uh, there to promote the education and science of photography and they award um, certain distinctions the uh, basic one is the licentiateship then there is the associateship and finally the fellowship, the highest award of all, which uh, you have to obtain the associateship before you're even allowed to apply for a fellowship. Uh, a lot of people spend their whole lives working towards this thing um, and very often, most at the time, certainly when I began in photography, most fellows of the Royal Photographic Society would have been about in their 60s and 70s and sort of venerable, respected, senior persons in, in amateur photography. Um, and I managed... Um, well, I was determined, so I, I got on with it, and I got my um, fellowship of the Royal Photographic Society when I was in my early 30s, very early 30s, which was... So uh, that was about five years ago. Quite unusual <laughs> uh, in those days, 1974, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> but it was quite an achievement, and... Um, what they particularly look for in in a fellowship is is a very distinctive style. So if it, we were talking about paintings, you have to submit a, a, a very deliberately composed set of eighteen pictures. And if we were talking about paintings, if you saw eighteen Picassos, you would look at them and say Picasso. Or if it was Turner, you would look and say you would instinctively know that it was Turner's work. And really, they are looking for outstanding work where it could only have been by one person. It has to have a very, very distinctive style. Mm -hmm. And what is your style? At that time, um, I, it was, um, as I said, in 1974 when I achieved it, and it was made up really of a lot of work done in the very early 1970s when they were destroying a lot of the back-to-back houses in many of the cities throughout the country mm -hmm. and building what I would like to term these hideous blocks, very tall high-rise flats and they were totally destroying a community in a way of life. Um, and what I noticed particularly was that with the changes in the housing, it was the elderly people who were seemingly more bemused. It was the same with the decimal currency. The, the very old people couldn't get the hang of it. The children, learning things at school, picked it up very readily. And the same thing happened when the communities of the back-to-back street housing were destroyed. The children uh, moved into the flats. They carried on their way of life and playing outside and everything just the same. And it was the, the elderly people who yeah. found it difficult. So what I actually set out to photograph and show in my 18 pictures was that difference in the way of acceptance of the housing changes between the generations. So you had to do a specific project for your fellowship? And did you have to do a specific one for your associateship? No, well? the associateship is general. You have to prove basic competence and looking uh, at composition and print quality. Mm -hmm. And when you get to the fellowship, as I said, they, they, you, you pass that sort of test. So yeah. they're not looking for print quality and, and the basic competence. They're looking for this outstanding individual way of showing things that no other photographer could have done. Mm. And so were you a professional photographer? No, this was done purely as an amateur. Mm -hmm. um, professionals do, of course, gain the same distinction. Um, but I've so, so what were you doing as a job? Humble bank clerk. Humble bank clerk. Well, I'm sure many bank clerks listening would say there's nothing humble about being a bank clerk, <laughs> especially in those days when I'm sure security was a lot less than it is now. 
Well, I actually worked in a Fort Knox type of building without a single window. We distributed the cash to the branches in the armoured vans. So security has been a byword in our life for <laughs> a very long time. So are, are, you, are you from Walsall originally? I was born in Leeds. Born in Leeds? Yes. But you've just told me you're a Baggies fan. Well, I was born in Leeds, proud, should... proud to be a true Yorkshireman, of course, <laughs> but I uh, was only there for six months. And father was a general practitioner. Um, he had a practice in Quinton in Birmingham. Mm-hmm. He'd supported Leeds United all his life. And when he moved to the Midlands, he thought, where can I go to see some football? And he thought, well, West Bromwich Albion have always been a good football side. So he, he went there. And, uh, and that's how you got and into I the baggage. I first went in 1949 as a seven-year-old. <laughs> and uh, and a, what division were they in when you first saw them? Ah, you remember that? Yes. When I first saw them, it was the first division. Mm. But when father first went, it was the last day of the season. He went along about five to three. And he's, he's like me. He was about five foot four tall. And he found himself right at the back of a very huge crowd. And I think he saw the ball about three times when it was kicked high up in the air. Mm-hmm. Um, it was the day they won promotion. <laughs> of course, there was a huge crowd there. <laughs> oh, and they've not won promotion that often since. That's true, isn't it? Yes. Bit of a, bit of a yo-yo at the moment. <laughs> and do you go? Do you ever go? No, I haven't been since I started with my heart disease, mm-hmm. unfortunately. We found you know, the inclement weather and the parking. I'm sure there's away. many people in Wolverhampton who would say watching West Brom will kill you. I still think you should I have seen them win the FA Cup twice. Have you indeed? That was about... 1954 and 1968. I was going to say 67. That's the, I can remember the 67 one, but the other one was actually before I was born. So <laughs> so when you were a, a humble bank clerk, you were doing photography then? Oh, yes. And, and, and what were you taking pictures of generally? Like, did you, did you take photographs of people? Or One of the things I found really endearing about photography is that it, it's, you make the picture in a split second in time. Mm. Um, and that picture wasn't there a second before, and a second later it's gone, and the probability is it's gone forever. And it's capturing, particularly with people and children, capturing expressions on a face that is only there for a split second in time. So, so we, the, we've got a picture in front of me. Of uh, a Punch and Judy show, it's or rather the audience of a Punch and Judy show, where we have four contrasting expressions of the height of excitement of these four children, two boys and two girls. And I think there's something uh, a little bit amusing about this, apart from the, the, the great excitement of the expressions, is that they say that women are the weaker sex. Mm, yeah. And yet the two boys look frightened and they're they covering do, they their eyes terrified. and not looking at what's going on on the, uh, the Punch and Judy show. But look at the expressions of those two girls. Go Absolutely. on, hit him again. <laughs> they're loving it. <laughs> And, and so you, most of your photographs that I've ever seen are all black and white. Do you do colour? I have done a little bit of colour. In his budget. For some years, I was sponsored to do talks to camera clubs by Konica. And because they're makers of, of colour film, uh, they wanted me to produce colour pictures um, to promote their, their film. But it was a, uh, a small percentage of my output. And so why, what's your preference for black and white? Because you do have a preference for I think it's something that's quite instinctive. I I tend to... I must have a way of seeing these things in in black and white. The other thing that um, crops up quite a lot in in my work is I tend not to see curves. A lot of my pictures are made up of very bold, strong, straight lines. And again, I can't uh, say... It's nothing deliberate. I think it's just there basically as an instinct. Mm. Well, because I used to do a bit of photography and I always much preferred black and white. And I think even on film, it, it's much better, uh, that kind of notion of contrast that you get. Well, I think one of the things that appeals to me is that colour reproduces what the eye sees, whereas black and white is one step away from reality. Therefore, I think it, it has a more creative content within it. And I always feel that colour ages a, a photograph in a way that yeah. black and white doesn't. Mm. Well, the, 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 this other particular photograph that I've now... Uh, asked you to look at um, mm-hmm. I was walking round uh, the corner of a block of houses near uh, two churches in a very uh, remote village in North Yorkshire and uh, one of the churches was a dark and black 
Victorian building, which is in current use. The other one was a medieval one that's in total state of disrepair. Very unusual circumstances. They stood side by side. And as we walked around the corner, I suddenly came across this little girl walking towards me with her dog. And I instinctively got down to her level and took the picture with her not as most people would do in the centre of the photograph, but she was right on the edge of the picture and taken from her own level. I think the result of that shows something that suggests very strongly the innocence and vulnerability of childhood. Uh, and also it's quite hard with the dog as well. The dog's name was Donut, if you like useless information. <laughs> <laughs> I'm interested in, in, is there an art, or do you think, again, it's a natural thing that you, you develop or have in, in the construction of photographs? Because so many people don't know how to construct a photograph, and, and you obviously do, because these are, these are brilliant. And, it, and it, it is a skill, isn't it? Well, not only a skill, but I, what I found was that when I first started and joined a camera club, that, that they would have competitions and judges would talk about specific rules about things ought to be on the third of the photograph and, and everything. And it took me some years to get out of that frame of mind mm. and to realise that there are other ways of doing things that were far more creative and subjective. And uh, so to get basic rules out of your head and do things your own way was quite a struggle and I suppose working towards a fellowship of the Royal Photographic Society where it had to be distinctive mm. and had to be individual was one of those um, points in my life that moved me down a track uh, away from the traditional. Because cause looking at this picture, uh, the one with the child and the dog and the, the child and the dog are, are kind of like centre to right and then the church at the back and most of it is what you would probably be taught you shouldn't have it a picture. It's kind of a wasted space. And yet it defies that rule to actually enable the perfect picture. Well, I think we are talking here about a constructive pictorial photograph. Mm. Photography has many, many uses, of course. In your daily lives, you see the news on the television or in the newspaper. People use it for recording family events and weddings, holidays. Um, people take their children, they would wash them, put them in their best Sunday clothes, take them to a studio where they would have a formal portrait made for the mantelpiece. My pictures of children, I think, showing them in the environment in a candid way, in the way that that particular picture is shown, says far more about the child mm. than a, a formal presentation in a mm. studio. Mm -hmm. No, I agree, absolutely. So you're lying with the camera, basically. No. Do, do you lie with the camera or does the camera no. tell the truth? No, the camera tells the truth. The camera tells the truth. Yes. <laughs> Is that true, though? Because I, I've been thinking about it recently uh, for something else I'm doing. And it's like, like most photographs. Uh, it distorts your memory of the reality, doesn't it? The only way that I would say it might distort it, and I'm saying it, it doesn't make it lie, but a favourite quotation of mine by one of the great American photographers was, if you put a frame around some facts, you change the facts. Mm. So perhaps it's not always what's seen in the photograph, but what's left out, what is deliberately left out, where I choose to frame it and put it within the viewfinder. Mm -hmm. that, well, that would perhaps be the only distortion. Mm. But again, it's, it's still presenting what I've seen. Because I, I'm intrigued by f like family photography in particular in the sense that I think a lot of people's... Uh, you don't have to agree, you can disagree. That a lot of people remember their family history and family events when in fact what they're remembering is the photograph. And really they have very little recollection of the event or the, or the reality of a moment. And they're remembering the photograph, which is the joy of photography. That's not a criticism. I think that's the joy of photography. And in that sense, it, 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 it's not a lie, but it's a, it is a distortion because it's not real, which is what makes photography one of the, the true arts for me. I, I prefer photography to painting to virtually any other art, perhaps with the exception of cinema. And I think photography it both transcends and informs memory and the experience of now and the past. When I used to do my talks, I used to say that painters had an advantage over photographers in as much as they, they could change something that was in front of them. If there was uh, one ugly building in a field and a beautiful pastoral scene, they could paint it without that 
ugly mm. building. Mm. The photographer is stuck with what is in front of his camera. Perhaps these days with the, uh, the digital... Uh, <laughs> Not with Photoshop movement, anymore. Um, <clears throat> that's perhaps changing. And um, But I have stuck to traditional methods and film and uh, silver gelatine prints. So, so you develop your own... Photographs, obviously. Yes. I was basically self-taught. Once I got the camera and joined the camera club and seen other people's black and white and said, that is what I want to do, I bought a second-hand enlarger and the other equipment, stuck it up in my parents' loft and got up there and taught myself. You see, I'm old enough that I did photography developing as well when I was at school. And I, I, I think probably people my age and a bit older, I'm obviously older than I look, <laughs> we did develop our own photographs and you did photography in school you know and, and it, I don't think that's the case anymore I'd very much be surprised if it was <laughs> so let's let's I've got to play a couple of trials and then we'll move on to the to the next the next chat so let's just play this okay agenda for today's team meeting taking our business to the next level any suggestions thoughts ideas Volunteers? Is anyone in the team actually bothered? Um, sir, I am the team. If you don't invest and give local young people a chance by giving them work placements, apprenticeships or taster sessions in your business, you might find you have no future workforce. NEAT is an organisation that strives to reduce the number of young people leaving education, employment or training in Wolverhampton. They can help you and your workforce. To have an informal chat about how giving young people a chance to prove their potential can benefit your business, call the Tackling Neat Project Coordinator, Jenny Brett, on 07964 256 404 or email her brettj at wolfcoal.ac.uk. Final agenda item, the team night out. Table for two again. It's Saturday morning. The weekend's begun. Just settle back. We'll have some fun. Open Happy's WCR FM Saturday morning special with me, Lee B. And me, the Nickster. We'll have plenty of stuff to get you up and happy for the weekend. Teasers and quizzes. Silly stories and true tales. Previews of new films. So gossip and entertainment news. And more up and happy tunes than you can shake a stick at. But hang on, why would you want to shake a stick at them? I don't know, it's a saying, isn't it? What you mean, like, he who laughs last should look before he leaps? Yeah, something like that. <laughs> oh, good. So, that's Up and Happy. With Nixter and Lee B. Or Lee B and the Nixter. Saturday mornings, 9 till 12. You know it makes sense. On 101.8 WCR-FM. WCR-FM is brought to you with help and funding from our partners at Wolverhampton City Council, the City of Wolverhampton College, New Hampton Arts Centre, The Lighthouse, the University of Wolverhampton and Wolverhampton Network Consortium. WCR-FM Well, we've got Clifford Morris in the studio with us, well-known photographer. Uh, what, what's your interest in, in, in industrial archaeology and photography then? Well, I'm sorry to confess, um, when I was at school, uh, I was dragged along by my mates uh, down to the railway station and became a train spotter. <laughs> uh, the days of proper railways, of course, are steam trains, and I've uh, had a lifelong interest in the steam trains, which I found eventually um, extended to the canals and the, the northern cotton towns from where, where I was born. And uh, literally, the, the interest in industrial archaeology has run alongside the photography throughout all those years. Mm -hmm. um, the sort of thing that it led me to do would be to go down to Gas Street Basin in Birmingham in the final days of the, the working narrowboats and of course now it's a sort of major tourist attraction and they've uh, tarted it all up and I think it's lost some of the charm that it had in, in the days of the working boats and mm. uh, I found this picture again in the late 60s, early 1970s And this is a picture of a mother and a child a mother and a child off a barge. and you can see um, from the ladies age, uh, the age of the child, that that woman wouldn't have been that old and yet I think she looks much older than her years due to the hardship of the way that uh, life must have been on those narrowboats. Absolutely, and, and the industrial buildings in the back as well. Yes, it's... And, uh, and then they're no, they're no uh, touched up boats for the tourists in no, those days. not so. in those days. And it's... And the, and the cigarette in the mouth as well, it was very hard. Yes, it's... Uh, again, it's... it's um, a, from its period in time it's an important picture from that era mm. and uh, the the way i think that photography should be used we should be recording the time in which we've lived in that particular way because you had a canals uh exhibition at the lighthouse that came much later 
Um, one of the things I did around that time uh, in uh, 1976, I was sending photographs by members of the Royal Photographic Society all over the world to international exhibitions and mm -hmm. competitions. And because of that work, the um, Royal Photographic Society said, would I like to go on their exhibitions committee? And um, they had a gallery in London literally had one exhibition per month so they were looking for 12 exhibitions a year now six of them were spoken for the various groups within the society the pictorial group the nature group the color group um, <coughs> even the, the medical group that they each had this gallery for a month mm. and put on an exhibition but they had to find six exhibitions a year to fill the remainder of the time and uh I sat there at one of these committee meetings and they'd all got their heads in their hands or what can we put on? And uh, I suddenly said, you do realise, it must have been 1975, because I said, you do realise that next year is the 150th anniversary of the railways. And railways are very, very popular and would make a, an intriguing exhibition. And they said, Clifford, what a wonderful idea. Um, go away and tell us when you've got it ready. Which I hadn't bargained for, but uh, I had a friend... Um, in Birmingham called Pat Whitehouse, Mr. Pat Whitehouse, mm -hmm. who was very instrumental in the um, Tisley Preservation Centre in, in Birmingham. And I, he'd published a lot of books on railways. And I went to him and uh, suggested this idea. And he said, yes, we'll, we'll do it. We'll do it by invitation. A lot of the railway photographers didn't make exhibition-sized prints. So it, it finished up that once we'd asked for submissions from... Uh, his circle of photographers, we decided the pictures that we were going to put in our exhibition and I finished up printing most of them, including four pictures by um, the Bishop of Wakefield, who was one of the most famous railway photographers, and he sent me his negatives and I, I printed up his pictures and we had uh, several nice telephone conversations. And uh, we put together this wonderful exhibition of about 150 prints, uh, a slideshow set to sound, and two uh, films made by the BBC on, on railways. We put together this whole show, which was going to be shown in London, opening on the 8th of September in 1976, and we called it Photo Rail. At this point, when it was almost ready, I was thinking we ought to get somebody famous to open it, uh, we'd had so many famous photographers open exhibitions at the Royal Photographic Society, I thought we want a railway man, not a photographer. And I was an avid Radio 4 listener. Every, in the morning, as soon as I got out of bed, news headlines, listen to the, the radio. And one morning, um, <coughs> Harold Wilson, just resigned as Prime Minister, was being interviewed and said that the first book he ever wrote was The History of Railways, and he had a lifelong interest in railways. I thought, that's my man. So went to work, um, came home that evening, rang my own member of parliament and uh, managed to extract the personal telephone number for Harold Wilson, dialed it all night long with no response and eventually it got to 10 o'clock and I thought, well, we'll just watch the news headlines at 10 o'clock and I'll try him once more and then if no joy, leave it till tomorrow. So we watched the news at 10 o'clock, five past 10, dialed the number and the phone was answered. And the voice at the other end said, yes. And I said, well, can I speak to Sir Harold Wilson, please? And he's speaking. So I told him all about the exhibition and gave him the date and the time. And he laughed. He said, well, I get about 30 of these requests a week. <laughs> he said, but uh, write in and we'll see what we can do. And I wrote in and I heard nothing for some time. And I thought, well, he could have written straight back and said, I'm busy, I can't come. So I was still hopeful. And I was working at that stage on the counter. I was a clerk on the, running a till on the counter at Barclays Bank in Bloxwich. And we were very, very busy one morning. The queue's out the door. And the telephone rang on the, the desk behind me. And the girls didn't ask who was calling. They took the call, passed the phone across to me and said, um, there's a lady on the phone for you. We think it's your wife. And as I say, I'd got a customer and I'd got a great big queue behind. So I said, what do you want? And the voice at the other end says, this is Lady Faulkner. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, what time is your due on the 8th of September? She says, well, Sir Harold will be there. 
So we hadn't got time to publicise it. We'd sold all the tickets for the slide and the film show and um, all these rail enthusiasts turned up and sat down and in we walked with the, prime, the former Prime Minister, which uh, <laughs> gave quite a few of them a bit of a surprise. <laughs> and um, Sir Harold made a marvellous speech, uh, opened the exhibition for us and said that his first uh, his, uh, interest in railways was formed with the day his father took him to London to the Great Exhibition in 1923. Um, when he had his famous photograph taken on the doorsteps of Number 10 as a child, and he saw the Flying Scotsman at the Great Exhibition. And a lady in the audience said, Oh, yes, uh, I remember that. I was there. And Sir Harold said, Madam, he said, no lady should admit to being able to remember the Great <laughs> Exhibition of 1923. <laughs> That, so, so, that's excellent. That's a wonderful story. Yeah. So we had a, it took twelve months to put together, and this was in this was the days when both my wife and I were working full time. We were lecturing to camera clubs two and three nights every week. We were sending these photographs from the members all over the world every week in parcels, and we found about two thousand hours to form this photo rail exhibition. Happily, it still exists. It's Does an it? archive. It's all still together as an entity. Uh, I think at the National Museum of Photography in Bradford. Excellent, that's wonderful. And so, have you? Do you go? Do you go to the photography museum in Bradford at all? And what do you think of it? Haven't been for some time. I think they've changed the embassy. In fact, they've changed the name now. I think it's, it's called the Media M- M- Museum of the Media. Yeah. And uh, I don't think there's. I think qu- photography's been a bit marginalised. Yes, it? I think the te- television, television and, and film is per- that perhaps think it might be slightly more important. Which is a which is a terrible shame in my view because I think yeah. television and film get quite a lot of coverage elsewhere, really, don't they? Yeah. And so is is photography uh, the old style photography? You know, printing it and all that. Is it expensive? Relatively, relatively. I, I haven't gone digital. Has, has it become more? Well, I suppose what I'm interested in, you know, it costs what it costs then. But now you've got digital. Are they bumping up the prices of all that? Well, it's it's getting more and more difficult to get the materials. Mm-hmm. The traditional materials far harder to find. Um, although I haven't gone digital, I've been to certain seminars and tried to pick up information as I've gone along, and I am concerned about the costs of the multiple bottles of ink that it takes to produce it, particularly as a black and white yep. photographer. So I, I have a sneaking suspicion that digital could be even more expensive. I think it, I think it probably is. But I was interested on whether you'd seen a rise in the price of, of the materials you use, given they're, that they're more difficult to get, or are they staying about the same kind of price? Because now, it's, now it's a specialism. Probably only going up with routine inflation. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that's, that's good. That's good. That's good news. So tell me about uh, the Fenton Medal. When we finally gave up this scheme where we sent these photographs all over the world, we'd sent out nearly 5,500 photographs and we'd had a consistent 25% acceptance rate by British photographers in all the foreign exhibitions and also picked up sort of one trophy per exhibition, which was quite some going. And uh, as I say, we did this for eight years. I was Midland Regional Organiser putting on meetings in uh, the area for the Royal Photographic Society for 16 years and they introduced... Um, Fenton was the first war photographer. He went round the crime Roger. area. In, in, uh, Roger Fenton in a, in a wooden hut um, developing his photographs on the spot and he was the first secretary of the Royal Photographic Society and they inaugurated this medal basically for services to the photography. And my medal in 1981 was only the fourth one ever awarded. Oh, excellent, excellent. So that's very, very treasured. And so who are your heroes in photography, such as Fenton? Is Fenton a hero? Certainly, a certainly in a way, but I, th- I think p- photographers who influenced me would m- more likely be people like Cartier-Bresson, Bill Brandt, um, uh, people like that. Um and the other great hero um, that I had a, a, a great association with was the legendary Bert Hardy of Picture Post magazine. He took uh, a photograph of two girls on Blackpool Seafront in about 1951 with the skirts blowing up in the air, which became a very, very famous photograph. And the, the people said it was the image that um, portrayed the 1950s. 
and he was also a famous war photographer, went right through the Second World War, and he was also on, on the Korean landings, and he photographed the Blitz for Picture Post, some very, very famous uh, photographs of the Blitz in London, and Picture Post never published the names of their photographers. They were always, pictures were always published anonymously. Mm -hmm. And when they published those photographs of the Blitz, they put a little line at the bottom to say, we exempt these pictures from that rule, and they were taken by Bert Hardy. Mm -hmm. So we invited Bert Hardy to come up to the Midlands, and we had a joint meeting of the Royal Photographic Society and the Smethwick Photographic Society, and Bert absolutely captivated. I mean, amazing, uh, outrageous Cockney character, and uh, they absolutely loved it. I also brought up to the Midlands um, his boss, Sir Tom Hopkinson, who was editor of Picture Post, and he did a talk on the days of Picture Post. And then, uh, for a second time, Bert Hardy came back and gave exactly the same talk as he'd given the first time. People were so uh, enamoured with all this that they wanted to see it all again. And Bert came up again and stayed with us. And when we got back late at night, he opened a bag, produced a copy of this photograph of these two girls at Blackpool, uh, signed it and said, you can have this. So that, again, is something else that's very treasured. Um, we always used to get a postcard every Christmas signed by Bert as a Christmas card, one of his prints. And one year we had a picture, there was a very famous advert for Strand cigarettes uh, called You Never Alone with a Strand. And it Indeed. was a man in a white mac and a trilby hat stood on Westminster Bridge in the rain in the middle of the night. And Bert did that particular commission. They actually had a girl as well to start when they started the shooting and he said it looks tacky, send the girl home and he just photographed this man on Westminster Bridge and a uh, very famous photograph, one of those arrived on Christmas. <laughs> and when Bert sadly died, I thought, well, that's the end of that. I've got about 14 of these postcards, and they're very treasured, they're all signed, but um, we won't get any more, but we get one every year from Sheila. <laughs> and this year, sadly, uh, she'd written on the back, uh, sent it again, one of Bert's pictures, and wrote on the back that she'd finally closed the darkroom. So that's another uh, end of another chapter. An end of an era as well. Yes. And so... What? Because Fenton took war photographs, didn't he, yes. as well? Because I remember seeing, I went to an exhibition of his... I think at, he did other things, but at, he was famous uh, because he was the first war photographer at in Crimea. I went to a big exhibition of his in London once, uh, the Fenton things. So what kind of American photographers do you like? Because you mentioned American photographers um, earlier. Eugene Smith. Mm -hmm. um, when you come back to just photography, tell the truth, because his famous book is Let Truth Be the Prejudice. <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, Walker Evans. Mm -hmm. Walker Evans takes uh, took a lot of pictures, very, very straightforward, very bold, uh, strong straight lines, the sort of thing that I, I would do myself. So, yes, I have an empathy with his work. And and who was the one who took a load of the, uh, the Depression era photographs? Oh, he was involved in that. Well, is there one called Ansel Adams? What did he photograph? Was Ansel that Adams was landscape. landscape. And do you do landscapes that are non-industrial? I couldn't take a landscape to save my life. <laughs> I'm a town and city man. I was when I first began. We were very, very taken with the paintings of Ellis Lowry, mm. and if I was to go to some of these northern towns, I was instinctively drawn to the poorer areas of the town, the same as he was. That mm. was where I would find my pictures. I love landscape. I can drive around the Yorkshire Dales and the, the Lake District and Snowdonia to my heart's content. Love to take in the scenery. But I do take pictures, but they aren't any good. <laughs> it's not me. <laughs> and is that the difference? It's not you? I accept that. Mm. Um, you see, a lot of people, particularly camera club photographers, they, they will do portraits, still lives, landscapes... Uh, candid pictures, they'll do try and, and then they're never master of any. Mm. I think you've got to find your particular subject, your way with it, and do it to the best of your ability. You've got to have an empathy with, mm. with your subject, mm. so you can't do everything. So, so what was you, what 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 focused your interest in the kind of cities and the poorer areas? Is that where you heart uh, uh, heart politically as well? With it, with a, empathy and sympathy for that, I think it's purely artistic. Artistic, mm. the, the joy of the the Lowry sort of pictures, the feeling of being at home in such an environment and mm. working with the camera. Mm. And was was that where, like, you grew up? Where did where did you grow up? 
Quinton in Birmingham. Quinton, which isn't exactly renowned for its industrial... No. Hardcore heritage, no. really, is it? But some of the sort of things that I got around the mill towns in the late 60s and early 70s, um, now, if you go back, they're not going to look like that. Mm. The, those towns altered completely. This so is again, a, it's historical record as well as having the artistic content. So we're, we're looking at a, kind of like a cobbled street in a northern town. Nelson and Cone and that sort of area. Yeah. And it's, Very darkened buildings. Of course, again, we had all the smoke and the chimneys in these days. All this has been lost. You've almost got a bit of countryside in the back there. Almost. Almost a bit of a landscape. <laughs> and so, because, uh, uh, so did you go... Uh, did you spend a lot of time in Birmingham then when you were very young? Because Birmingham, again, you know, because it's before my time and I'm not from... Yes, the I have Midlands. got pictures in Birmingham, but the, the, the one that you're looking at now, uh, very, solitary woman, very narrow back-to-back -back streets street. in, in Widnes, and it's got the old type of flag paving stones, which no longer exist. It's got gas lamps, which no longer exist. That didn't exist for very much longer because uh, mm. I, I was back a couple of years later and it was just a pile of bricks. It had all been demolished and I felt I'd lost an old friend. Mm. Uh, but the, one of the intriguing things about that scene, there's no cars. Mm. That's what enabled me to make such a picture because I wasn't obstructed by, by the cars. Mm. And you couldn't possibly find anything like that in this day and age. And similarly with this one, a, a street uh, in Middlesbrough, again in the late 60s, filled with children and people and no vehicles. Mm. Uh, absolutely amazing sort of uh, juxtaposition of, of houses and people. And you would never be able to witness anything quite like that again. So, so why were you going to places like Widnes and Middlesbrough? Was it to take photographs? Oh, yes, very deliberately. This was the time when I was working for a fellowship with the Royal Photographers. So you took Society. your wife on holiday to Middlesbrough and Witness? Yes. <laughs> we might have stayed... You know how to show a woman a good time, don't you? We might have stayed somewhere more salubrious, but, <laughs> but to go out and do the photography, yes, it was quite deliberate. <laughs> but it, it now has value. Absolutely. As telling a historical story. Absolutely. How things, that is how things were. Mm. And will never be again. Mm. And is that and that's good, really, isn't it? That it won't be like that again, because it was a lot of poverty, and and in a way, the photography that you've shown me is very much about about poverty, isn't it? Yes. You see, in the same era, you asked about Birmingham, mm -hmm. and down near the Dudley Road Hospital, where the back-to-back -back houses were being demolished and the blocks of flats were being thrown up in their place, I managed to take this juxtaposition of those two things, interspersed with some dead, derelict trees that they put railings around as if they're trying to preserve them. them. I call the picture conservation. The trees themselves are almost throwing up their arms in despair at what they see happening around them. And you've got the new modern blocks in the back as well. It's all there. It is. It is. It's excellent. It's excellent. And so what, what do you do with all this photography that you've got, all these photographs? What do you do with it now? Do you have a big room that's got hundreds of thousands of photographs in it? No. No, occasionally I might be asked to give a talk. Mm. Um, I've had several one-man exhibitions, um, but I had an approach from the records office in Walsall some years ago. Um, they asked me to call in, and uh, this is where all the archives from Walsall are kept from the 1300s. Um, they have a huge fault with papers and historical artefacts going back all these centuries, all preserved in humidity and temperature-controlled conditions. Mm -hmm. And uh, I got rather a shock when they sat me down and said, we feel that your work is of such importance and quality that we would like you to donate all your life's work to the Walsall History Centre. So we did, in fact, sign a contract and it's now all stored down there during my lifetime it's mine and only i can print from my negatives mm -hmm. but when we've gone it will become a permanent archive and collection which under those conditions should last for hundreds of years and to a certain extent we're not that unhappy that we no longer have it around the house because under beds and stuffed in wardrobes in various places isn't the place for archival material so at least I know it's like a little bit of um, immortality and at least it will be preserved for many many centuries and I, I, I have you considered digitising it and doing websites of it and, and for other people to see because I, I, you know the archive is good and excellent but often they're not, it's not seen as much as it could be is it it's all in the pipeline, but it depends on funding. There is a major big new project we want to undertake, and perhaps 
if we can get on with that, we might build a website into that particular project. And so does a lot of your photography, is a lot of it of Walsall? Have you lived there long? Yes, ever since, well, when we'd been married about three years, we moved back to, my wife was born in Walsall and we moved back to Walsall at that stage. And um, you've been yes, taking... There's, there's always been pictures of Walsall, but not a great deal of... Mm -hmm. uh, it, it, it's scattered about from th right across the country, depending on what we were interested in at the time. And so have you tried your hand at, like, sport photography and other things like that ever? Only occasionally. Um, I was asked to photograph a lot of bank social events. Um... One or two sporting guys. I photographed. We had a, an, an annual staff sportsman's dinner where they had guest speakers. So I photographed people like Sir Alec Rose, the, the yachtsman, and things. But one year, instead of having a guest speaker, they had some wrestling. We all sat around and ate our meal with wrestling going on. And I, we, I was more interested in taking the photographs. And I got some nice shots. Chap called Count Bartelli. Mm. And I got a very nice photograph of him strangling some poor boy, <laughs> and it was the shape of it. He got the bloke on his hands and knees on the floor, and he was up above him and um, choking the life out of him. And the, the, I called it pyramid of strength because the whole thing was triangular shaped mm. uh, like a pyramid. So yeah, but also um, the bank played um, an annual match against the Royal Bank of Scotland, and uh, Barclays Bank. Had at least two England internationals. David Duckham was one of them playing for the bank and the Royal Bank of Scotland. I think had about six Scottish internationals playing, so that it was quite a high-powered match at rugby. Rugby, uh, not my game, but I used to go and photograph it. And, I remember uh, David Duckham for some strange uh, reason. And, and I took a photograph uh, at a very slow shutter speed uh, of these rugby games and got some very artistic, blurred pictures of people running with a rugby ball, quite like one of the pictures. And a competition came up in a magazine where you had to produce a, um, a landscape, a sport photograph, a portrait, and as general, choose what you like for the fourth one. And I sent off four prints, and one of the judges was Lord Litchfield. And uh, it was all four black and white, and uh, I was got the flu. It felt really, really down. And lying in bed, I've been very sorry for myself when the phone rang and uh, picked the phone up and he said, oh, I'm the editor of uh, whatever the magazine was at the time. You've won third prize in our competition. And Lord Litchfield was particularly taken with one of your photographs. So uh, I actually um, made a print and we, we went along to Lord Litchfield's exhibition somewhere and uh, I gave it to him and uh, actually his wife snatched it off him and she seemed really taken with it. But I actually read in a magazine, his own studio in London, he never displayed his own photographs. He always displayed photographs by other photographers. And uh, I read in a magazine that mine was actually displayed in Lord Litchfield's studio. Very good, very good. So I was uh, eventually asked to um, have a one-man show at the Litchfield Arts Centre in 1983. And was that your first one-man show? That was my first one-man show, which was basically a collection of all different subjects that I'd done over the years and shown to camera clubs. And uh, I wrote to Lord Litchfield and asked if he'd come and open it, um, which he did. Uh, he was president of the Litchfield Arts Festival and he happened to be on during the festival, so he came along very kindly and opened the exhibition for us five days after he'd been in a head-on car smash in Spain. Mm. <laughs> he was in a great deal of pain, um, but he's very, 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 very supportive. Mm. And about that time, I'd got interested in um, a charity that had been set up called the Disabled Photographers Society, and they adapted equipment for limbless people and people partially sighted so that they could could enjoy photography and I thought this was very worthwhile the gentleman who'd founded it Arthur Scrace we sent him an, an invitation and he came up and, and met Lord Litchfield and I thought I'd use the exhibition to raise some money uh, for the society so we had a collection box in the gallery throughout the exhibition 
and I bought one of Lord Litchfield's books and got him to sign it and we raffled that off on the opening day and I raised uh, about £700 for the um, Disabled Photography Society mm -hmm. which was uh, a pleasant thing to do now I find myself a member. <laughs> um, we'll come to why you're a member in the second half. And then um, some years later I was... Um, offered a one-man show at the Octagon in Bath, which was the headquarters of the Royal Photographic Society. And that place was gorgeous. They've got some lovely facilities, a marvellous collection of vintage cameras and, uh, and everything. And, of course, a wonderful, priceless um, collection of vintage photographs, which they showed from time to time, all of which has now all gone to Bradford. To, mm -hmm. But um, one, thing that, one thing that niggled me at the time was that this very old historical building in Bath had no lift for disabled people. And it was on several different levels. And anybody in a wheelchair, they went in, they saw the shop, they saw the galleries on the one floor, and the rest of it, they got no chance. Mm. And the society actually set up a fund to raise money for a lift for the disabled. Um, the society's always been short of money. And... Uh, I thought I'll do something about this. And when I was offered the exhibition, uh, I'd given a talk in Liverpool. There's, um, in Liverpool, there were several camera clubs, but the Royal Liver Buildings, the secretary of um, the Royal Liver Insurance Company, oh, I know. Uh, he was secretary of um, yeah, Royal Life Insurance Company. Uh, the secretary of that company um, was involved with these camera clubs and he used to donate the um, the big lecture theatre in the Royal Liver building uh, once a night where all the camera clubs of Liverpool would come together and they would invite one specific well-known photographer from outside the area to go and give them a talk. And I had been invited on one occasion to go and do this. I was a very big audience. Um, actually put my foot in it because the uh, a man on the front row was wearing a Barclays Bank messenger's tie. And after they'd given the talk, I sidled up to this man and um, being a clerk, I said, um, and where are you a messenger? <laughs> he said, I'm a, on the board of directors. <laughs> Just happened to have the wrong tie. But um, we gave the talk in Liverpool. And when I had the opportunity of the exhibition in Bath, I wrote to this gentleman who was Secretary of Royal Life Insurance and said, look, I'd like to print a catalogue. It's going to cost... Um, a thousand pounds and would you be prepared to contribute to the printing costs of this catalogue and they sent me a cheque for 500 i then put my own employers on the spot and wrote to them at the head office and said look uh, royal life have given me 500 i need another 500 and what are you going to do about it <laughs> so they sent me 500 pounds and we printed a thousand copies for a thousand pounds of this catalogue which we sold at two pounds each and uh, with various collections and other things, I raised over £2,000 for this lift for disabled people. Excellent. It wasn't enough, but it, the other thing it happened, it got other people doing the same thing, and they would be going out and raising money, and we got more and more. But the costs of this lift were so much, we still thought it was light years away, and suddenly uh, an elderly American member died and left them a considerable amount of money in her will. And given that the society were always in money problems, we were absolutely astounded when they threw it all into the kitty to buy the lift. So we got the lift. <laughs> Fantastic. And it's still there and running. No presumably, unfortunately, they've had to vacate those premises and they're now somewhere else down the road. But presumably that lift is still there for whoever's using the building. <laughs> in the studio, we've got Clifford Morris with us, a disabled photographer. Uh, tell us about... Uh, your illness and then your retirement? Well, um, I'd got an inherited heart disease which led to a series of strokes just before my 50th birthday and uh, several blocked arteries and uh, I was in quite a bad way at the time and eventually the, the doctors decided that I ought to retire from work and uh, there came a point when I'd not really done any photography for three years, um, but I was determined to try and get back. And uh, I came along to Wolverhampton, where there was um, an evening seminar by West Midlands Arts. And I'd, uh, with my lifelong interest in the canals and industrial archaeology, I'd built up quite a collection of pictures of canals. 
and I thought that this would be a, an ideal subject to, to work on in as much as there's so much of it around the Midlands, it wouldn't necessitate me doing very much travelling and um, because of the nature of the darn things, there's no great steep hills to walk up mm. and I might be able to cope. So I thought... Um, the West Midlands Arts might be able to offer me some support. And I came along on a dreadfully cold February night to Wolverhampton, to the, the lighthouse, and listened to the talk by the lady from West Midlands Arts, Jenny, um, who said, amongst other things, that um, they gave money only to professional artists and they'd had, I think, uh, given out a number of grants and seen nothing for it. And in future, you had to have a, a gallery and a, an exhibition already planned before they would uh, even consider an application for funding. Mm -hmm. So both of those sort of rather depressed me. <laughs> and um, the other thing that I hadn't realised, that you had to put your name on a piece of paper to show your work at the end of the seminar... And I hadn't done so, so eventually I turned out to be the last one. So we had a very long wait to see this lady. And it was absolutely freezing cold and I was getting angina and uh, wasn't feeling at all well. But I thought, well, I'm here now, so I'd better stick it out. And uh, uh, another lady sidled up to me and said, well, I run the galleries here and my name's Evelyn. And uh, let me look at some of your work. So I showed her all these canal pictures. And we talked and I said, well, I'm very disappointed that, uh, you know, you've got to be professional and I'm only an amateur. And I said, as for having a gallery, you know, there's no way. And she said, well, I'll offer you a show. I like it. So um, when I eventually got to see Jenny and she said, don't oh, forget the professionalism, you know, you put in an application and uh, Westminster Arts gave me £600 and Evelyn from the Lighthouse gave me another 200 and off I went photographing all the Midland Canals, uh, with the result in uh, 1997, uh, we had the uh, the exhibition of the, the local canals. Which, is the, in, first, which in, is the first time I saw your work. Yeah, in, in Wolverhampton. And that was 1997, 11 years ago. 11 years ago. Well, following that, I then took the work down to the National Waterways Museum in Gloucester. And the curator there, Tony Conda, liked what he saw, uh, had a much bigger gallery. So um, they got a lottery grant and packed me off around various other parts of the country to double the size of the exhibition, which was then uh, taken out on uh, on tour. And it had... Uh, Quite a few places. About eight showings mm -hmm. um, around the country. And it was at the, more or less at the end of that um, that we, thanks to being introduced to other disabled artists through West Midlands Arts, that we formed a group called Talking Pictures where we, I would put my pictures to poetry and prose written by some of the other artists. And I worked with Semba Jallo Rutherford from Birmingham, who was a poet, um, on five abandoned industrial sites. We found an old factory that had been completely... Um, evacuated in Birmingham where they made Phillips head screws, Ephraim Phillips Limited, and that has subsequently been broken up into small industrial units, so what we saw there and put into poems and photographs is no longer exists in that form. Uh, we found an old derelict mine, which is very unusual because when they close a coal mine, they tend to bulldoze all the surface buildings almost immediately, so to, to find bits of it left is, uh, was quite unusual. And I went to photograph this dirty old coal mine dressed up in all my best clean clothes and <laughs> got into trouble over that one. <laughs> but um, we did that, and again, we, we took Semba to that. Um, we found the last um, working cotton mill in Derbyshire. When I say working, there were four people left working there where there had once been 400. And it was in a very, very deep gorge where there's two rivers run quite strong currents through this valley. So you could understand why they built the, the cotton mills in this valley because the, the power supply was there through the water. But it was in an extraordinarily deep gorge and we had to get Semba in a wheelchair down there and back again which was no easy task, and um, but, but we did accomplish it, and the, the, the remaining staff were very, very good. They started up all the machines to <laughs> show them how everything worked, and uh, it was all very interesting. And the final two sites were in Wolverhampton. Um, sadly to say, the cotton mill uh, has had a major fire, and although there were plans of turning it into rather posh apartments, 
people working in Manchester or Sheffield. It doesn't look as if it's going to happen. The whole place is now derelict. I was there last week. and uh, This is in Wolverhampton? No, this is the, the cotton mill in Derbyshire. In Derbyshire. And it's had this major fire and looks in a, in a very, very solid state. So, so they might I demolish then it. I then was driving through Wolverhampton one day and I saw on the gates of the low-level station a planning application. So I stopped the car, ran back and read it and uh, got the name of the estate agent and went down to see him and said, um, can I photograph it in its derelict state? And uh, they gave me the keys and I went along, let myself in. They said I had to lock the gates behind me and uh, I went into the low-level station and started to take some pictures. And, of course, we got... Uh, so when was this? It's now being completely renovated. This would have been in the late 1990s, mm -hmm. um, around 2000. And, of course, um, I think that particular one, the end wall, that so shows the very distinctive Great Western Railway architecture. I think that has since been demolished. And the track work was all intact at the time, all heavily overgrown with undergrowth. But, again, I think it's now all been lifted. So I have got a record of the low-level station in those days, which is, it will never be seen again. Indeed. Um, it was extraordinary, and as much as I knew I was the only person in there, I'd locked myself in, there couldn't have been anybody else there, but I felt certain someone was going to tap me on the shoulder and ask me what the hell I was doing. It was very, very eerie, especially as you could hear the trains on the other station going past, and it was a very weird sensation. But having done that, um, somebody said, well, why don't you look at the uh, abandoned brewery? Uh, Springfield Brewery just down the road as well. So that was my fifth site. And uh, again, we got the keys and permission and Semba and I went into the, the old brewery where we were able to capture something of the remaining equipment w within the brewery. And so and will people, where will be people be able to see these? My archive at the Walsall is <laughs> Ah, we are talking to the lighthouse about an exhibition in 2009 on the theme of nostalgia. Mm -hmm. So, yes, they, they may well come out and be shown at that, that particular event. Because I think but it would be nice if, if especially the Wolverhampton bit, the Lower Hills. Yeah. Is it the, called the, Low the, Hills? The, the other thing, of course, is that relative to the, the cotton mill in Derbyshire, that this building also had a major fire. Oh. So two of my five sites, um, whilst I've got unique pictures of them, at that moment in time, uh, we've now had these two major fires which have made such a difference to what I saw all those years ago. And have you been to photograph them with the fire? I haven't attempted to, to get back into the, the mm. buildings now. Mm. Mm. But yes, we, we are hoping that... Uh, well, hopefully Lighthouse. ...that we have this exhibition in 2009, as I say, on a theme of nostalgia and people's memories of those parts of Wolverhampton, and we hope to... That would be excellent. And so has, you, has what you photographed changed since you've been ill and retired? I found I no longer seem to be able to race around to do all the candid pictures of people quite so readily. And I found that the things I was taking, like the canals and these derelict buildings, which in a way illustrate what, how nature reclaims things once man's abandoned them, which um, the artists within the group felt reflected their disabilities and made it readily understandable. Um, but uh, I found myself looking very, very directly at my subjects. And again, coming back to this, when you put a frame around the facts, you change the facts. Mm -hmm. And I found that I was very, very consciously creating different style of pictures that by eliminating certain things and concentrating purely on the, on the bits that I wanted, the form and texture mm -hmm. of some of these decaying buildings, um, it, it was a change of style, and in, in a way that was no bad thing. Mm -hmm. yeah. It wasn't a change of standard in any way. It wasn't a lowering of standards. If anything, it perhaps pushed it up. So have you been using the same camera? Yes. For a long time, and what is that? I've got a Nikon F80 35mm. And how long have you had that? quite a while. Some time now, because when I was sponsored by Konica, mm. we somehow acquired an extraordinary assortment of about six cameras and numerous lenses and various things, um, which we used on trial. And um, in the end, once the sponsorship was gone and once I'd retired, we swapped the whole darn lot for one camera and one lens, which was enough to do the job. There's little point in humping about all this huge array of stuff when it wasn't required. So I got a brand new one and bought my wife 
a Nikon as well, so that we, we now have compatible cameras so we can interchange the lenses. And so what's your main lens then that you use for this kind of photography? It's a small zoom, I suppose, operating around slightly wide angle, mm. what we'd call a slight wide angle. Mm. Mm. And you're a big admirer of Nikon, obviously, and you've been happy with that camera. I've been very happy with it. Because they are one of the best brands, aren't they? They are good. And, so, and are you tempted to move into digital? I think I'm being forced to move into digital more than being tempted. <laughs> <laughs> and have you used digital cameras and, and tried to assess their quality at all? No, not yet. No. But you, so I've got several friends who have, of course. Mm. But you're a bit reluctant, really, aren't you? I think one of the things that's put me off for a long, long time has been the doubts about the permanence of the pictures printed by inks rather than mm. on silver gelatin. Mm. Uh, as I say, my work will last for hundreds of years in the conditions at the History Centre. Mm. Um, I think that with the digital images, they're perhaps moving towards greater permanence now mm. than when it first came along. And I'm interested, again, because of the, the digital stuff, and I do some digital photography, and, and if I don't like the look, I put it in Photoshop and I manipulate it a little bit, and it, you know the contrast goes up and you can take a bit of this out and a bit of that out which is cheating, really, but I like doing it. And, and of course, we, you, you, you do the same, but in a much more skillful way. Well, with a, with a handmade the, print, mm. I can change the contrast by dialing in a higher grade of paper on my enlarger. Mm. Mm. And because and, and, and you move your hands around to do overexposures and underexposures. If, if something things. is getting too dark, I can shade it with my hands to hold it back to match the rest of the photograph. Mm. Mm. And so has, has photography fulfilled you? Oh, yes. It's been therapeutic since mm. my illness. Gosh, it's... Uh, it's brought you back the, to one life. One of the things that's driven me on, because I'm in... Um, and, until the canal exhibition, I'd never had any funding. And... Mm. The, to be able to go out on projects with, with the funding and not have to think about shall I use an extra roll of film or not and just do it is, has been marvellous. So in reality, now you're a professional photographer? I still class myself as an amateur. <laughs> I, don't earn, I don't earn any, any living from it. <laughs> um, but I couldn't afford to do major exhibitions at the moment. Um, Semba and I, following on from the abandoned industrial sites, were, worked on abandoned military sites. And it was a very similar style of work. And again, the showing how nature reclaims that for which man has no further use. And uh, to bring in the disability element to it, uh, an understanding of, uh, of disability. And that exhibition has had, uh, or will have had, by the time it closes at the end of June, it's on at the Royal Air Force Museum at Cosford, um, will have had 12 months and probably 300,000 visitors, um, which is far beyond anything we've ever done before. Absolutely. And, uh, it's exceptional. There is no way that you can do an exhibition of that size on a pension. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so if someone came to you now wanting to be a photographer, where would they go? What magazine would they get to kind of get an idea about becoming a photographer? What would you recommend? Well, I went to the um, National Exhibition Centre at uh, the weekend, at the, the big focus trade photographic fair uh, there for four days. And there were a lot of colleges and universities with stands mm. uh, displaying work by the students, getting the, the MA degrees in photography, and I think that would be the obvious route. Anybody wanted to go mm. professional... Um, would go down that route these days. Having said that, Bert Hardy of Picture Post started off by running the films around for his employees on a bicycle as just a delivery boy and bought mm. a camera and mm. just did it. <laughs> he literally just did it. <laughs> well, I think I'd say coming coming back to football as well. Uh, I get a football magazine called uh, what the hell is it called? When Saturday Comes, and one of the reasons I get it because the centre spread is always an archive football photograph and uh, and and it really is good to see archive photography like that and new photography that that reflects the past and shows the past and, and enables us to preserve it for the future and I think you know you're doing exceptional work and we we wish you luck what's next 
As a spin-off from looking at all these old military buildings, we discovered a series of camps that were built in the 1930s where children from towns and cities, places like Wolverhampton, could go and experience the countryside. Mm. But I think they were built with uh, the back of people's minds that there might be a Second World War. And as soon as there was, children from the towns and cities were removed to some of these camps to obviously be educated well away from the bombing. Mm. And... Um, it all seems to be rather secretive. I've uh, done quite a lot of research on this. It's very, very difficult to find out where they all were. We understand that they might have built 34 of these camps, of which I've now identified 26, um, even though English heritage, you're only aware of 10 of them. So, <laughs> so it's all a very secretive thing. But we have managed to make contact with actually an, an old boys reunion party from the Derby Grammar School. And of course, all these gentlemen are now about 75, 80 years old. So we really think it's a project that has to be done sooner rather than later to Absolutely. capture the, these tremendous uh, stories of what life was like for children mm. during the war. Mm. So what do you do for fun? Or do you do this for fun? Uh, the railway interest is still there. I have a model railway. Mm. I built a sort of second garage onto the back of the house, which is just like a standard 12 foot by 8 garage, which when it was empty, I looked around and thought, gosh, this is the biggest model railway space I've ever had in my life. This is wonderful until you start to fill it. <laughs> um, and it's basically a fictitious place in West Yorkshire where I was born in the 1930s, and I've researched all the locomotives and rolling stock um, has been built once it actually operated in West Yorkshire in the 1930s. Mm. Um, several of the buildings uh, that I've scratch built have been based on particular real buildings, but it is a fictitious um, place. My grandfather was a gamekeeper, so there's a shooting party on the moors, and uh, I actually wrote down a lot of place names of Yorkshire places and split all the names in half and started to put the halves together and I came up with Clegworth, mm. which doesn't exist but sounds exactly right. So <laughs> I have a model railway called Clegworth, <laughs> for what it's worth. <laughs> and does your wife like your model railway? <laughs> Is that because it keeps you out of the house? We put all... The, I've got all the little cats of the neighbourhood. They're all on the layout and <laughs> silly things like that. <laughs> and so do you, do, you, do you go to steam railway places as well? Like, oh yes, Bridge North but the, and, and wherever the, the others preservation are. isn't the same as the real thing. It, it's lovely to see, and, and the smell, of course, is still there. But um, mm. it can never be because you you never when in my days as a train spotter, you never knew what was coming around the corner next. It was always going to be something different. Mm. Whereas on the preserved railways, it's always the same. <laughs> <laughs> and diesel and electric are just not the same. Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> I've only ever known diesel and electric, so uh, I can't really comment on the steam railway, really. But uh, I've been to Bridge North. What more can I say? That's about it. But, uh, well, I think we're, we're, we're coming to the end because uh, I know you want to leave. Uh, it's been fantastic to have you on the show and keep us informed. And, and hopefully when the exhibition opens at the Lighthouse in 2009, we'll give you a plug for that and whatever you want in assistance. And uh, we look forward to seeing you again. Thank you very much. Thanks for coming on the show. Pleasure.